The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are um, principally known to us as, as Father. Uh, we, um, we thank you that you are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet uh, the Son, uh, who now resides in us by the Spirit, taught us to address you as our Father. And we thank you for that, that you are uh, not far off, uh, but you by your grace have made us your sons and daughters. God, we pray that You would, uh, by that same grace, reveal Your Word to us. Uh, Open it, Lord. We know that without Your mercy and Your grace, it would be obscure uh, to us. And even with Your grace, sometimes it is hard to understand. So God, we ask by Your grace that You would open our hearts and open our minds, that You would give us understanding. We pray, of course, that this would not just be for our own edification, though we certainly know we will be edified by it but for Your glory and for the good of those around us, uh, that we may serve them, loving You and loving our neighbor. So Father, we we give to You this time and ask that You would um, forgive us our sins and that You would redeem us uh, once again and that You would give us the grace to live into our relationship with You. We thank You for this Word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, so we are uh, in a Lenten series on Galatians. I don't typically take requests, but I haven't really settled on uh, what we'll be doing through the season of Easter. So if you have an idea of what you would like to see uh, done, I would love to, I'd love to hear it. I've got a few things uh, that I'm thinking about, but I would love to, uh, uh, again, uh, not right now, not right now, tell, email me, email me, so you're chomping at the bit. Um, um, but yeah, no, I, would, I would welcome that, that input. So we're going through Galatians, and, uh, and I just, I think it is such an important letter. Uh, it articulates so well the doctrine of justification by faith, and it is uh, striking to me because it is so counterintuitive. We think that Paul might get really upset if people's moral lives were out of, uh, of kilter, and what is, what is strange about, or arresting maybe, about uh, this letter is that it's not their moral lives. Uh, that is out of kilter. It is their uh, religious lives. They are too moral, in a a sense. Uh, They are trying hard to add to what Christ has done in order to secure their salvation. Uh, They are doing this because folks have come in after Paul, have undermined Paul's authority, who are speaking words of flattery to the Galatians, and um, words of... um, they're maligning, I guess is a good way to say it, Paul's apostolic authority. So Paul has defended his apostolic authority. He said, I didn't ask for this. Jesus came to me. Uh, the word that I got from Jesus is the same word that the apostles got from Jesus. We met together and they confirmed it, but I didn't learn it from them. This is not man's gospel, right? It's what he says. Um, and so let me just read Galatians 4. because Galatians 4, we begin to see where, where Paul has taken off the gloves, in, particularly in uh, 2 and 3. We're really actually one, two, and three. He he has uh, not pulled any punches. We we begin to see his pastoral heart. I mean, Paul is not, uh, you know, like for instance, I uh, as a dad, uh, my kids. Uh, there was this one time where they really frustrated me, uh, and um, <laughs> thank you. I'm, now you're. I know you're listening. Is this thing on? Um, uh, yeah, like. One time uh, yesterday at five thirteen, um, the uh, but the uh, but you know so it, it recently actually one of my kids uh, hurt another kid fairly in, intentionally, and I had to say to this uh, this child, 
I mean, I, I, what I wanted to do is, is spank, you know, get out the belt or whatever, just and really make an impression. Uh, and um, and I, I just, by, I guess by God's grace, or maybe just because I've tried that and it hadn't worked, but, um, uh, you know, I thought that, um, you know, that's, that, that will... That is more likely to build resentment and to recreate that scenario than it is to instruct and prevent it uh, in the future. This person knows um, knows that that was not good behavior, and uh, and and yet that knowledge didn't prevent it. Right? That's the law. We know the law is. We've talked about that. The law lacks the enabling word, and so. The the punishment punishment is not um, really the solution. What is the solution is discipline, right? An instructive consequence, and so so that's what we are working on. Uh, a consequence for sure, but an instructive consequence that will hopefully um, move the heart. We'll see. Pray for us. Um, but that's really what Paul is doing. He he is uh, looking for an instructive consequence. He is uh, he is angry. Uh, he's angry at sin. He's angry at uh, heresy, but he's not. But he loves the Galatians, and, and so to, to call them foolish Galatians is not to say you idiots. He's is to say uh, you wanderers. Uh, I love you, and and I it br- is breaking my heart. I mean that's a pastor's job sometimes is to speak words of truth, you know, and, um, which are not comfortable. My favorite part of the job. Um, no, uh, but it is. It is. Uh, it is. It is part of the job. So let me read uh, as and read that. The beginning of chapter four really follows from chapter three, so we're gonna have to rehearse that just a little bit. But let me read what you got for Galatians four. It's not the not the plainest text you have ever seen. Um, it takes some it takes some uh, digging. I mean, Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, a child, right? And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. 
Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you. He's talking about the heretics who have come in. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we go back to the beginning of the chapter. And he begins saying, what I mean is, I mean that the heir, as long as he's the child, is no different from a slave. So what, what, he's, what he's about to say is explaining what he's just said. So let's, if you have a Bible or you can look it up on your phone or your iPad or something, then you can take a look at Galatians chapter 3. But what he has, if you remember, he's just finished saying that the law was our guardian, right? The word is, uh, in the King James, schoolmaster or like babysitter. Uh, it is the, the one who was watching over us so that we would not get out of line until our parents would finally come and pick us up. And so, um, what he has then said is that we are, uh, when Christ came, we got a new identity. Remember that? There's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus is now who you are. Uh, you, you didn't die for the sin of the world, but you, in a sense, get credit for it because you're in Him and you belong to Him and He is now your identity. And that is, you know, if you think of all the, the little empires we seek to build, we want our own identity. It's a little bit offensive, in a sense, and yet, for a Christian, it is incredibly hopeful because Jesus is, uh, I, he is the one to whom we are attached. He is the one... Uh, that we are identified with. When, when God looks at you, He does not see the, the complex, sometimes sinful, sometimes saintly, uh, high and low, depressed or anxious. Or He doesn't see that. He sees Jesus because you're in Christ. You're enveloped in Christ. That's, that's the gospel. You're clothed in Christ's righteousness. 
And so in that sense, even though the Spirit, you can think of it in a sense, the Spirit resides in us and works there to bear fruit, and yet also the righteousness of Christ clothes us on the outside and works its way in. You can think of it either way. But the main point that he is making in saying that we our identities in Christ is that the children of Abraham are children through faith. Right? Remember, Abraham was believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and that's one of the principal texts. We looked at that last week in Genesis chapter 15. And then he received the covenant. But he believed him first. And so what Paul has been saying is that this is not novel. That this is the way it has always been. And why, so why then the law? It was, to, it was to watch over us, to babysit us until the fullness of time, until the time set by the Father. And so um, now, in a sense, Christ has come. We've, we're coming of age. So, the children of Abraham, that is the children of God, are not children by works or by lineage, but by faith. And in fact, if you remember that uh, covenant, God told Abraham that through his line, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And, and um, Paul is saying very clearly, all nations of the earth are not going to be blessed by works of the law or by somehow becoming of the Jewish lineage, marrying in, uh, in, a, in a real sense, but by faith. So to explain that, he points out that a child neither gets the benefit nor the burden of his inheritance. Right? So let's say you, you've heard it before probably that a, a child who's, whose parents die before he or she has, has come of age, uh, that is left in a trust. There are people who watch over that. There are people who watch over the child until that child comes of age, whatever the, the will said, and whatever it is, 20, it's 18 or it's 25 or whatever it is, then... At that time, the, um, the child can, can um, get both the benefit of the inheritance, but also the burden, right? Now we've got to look after it. Now we have a responsibility. But, nevertheless, that, they no longer have the status as one who must be watched over. So they have a freedom that comes with that. So, until that time, the child works under guardians or tutors or babysitters or schoolmasters. There's lots of different ways to translate that word. Um, John Stott says this. He says, When we were children, meaning when we had not yet come of age, when we were under the law, when we were children, we were under the law's guardianship. God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ. But Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step for his condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac. That's a really great image. Satan uses the law as a cul-de-sac, deceiving his dupes into supposing that from his fearful bondage there is no escape. Now, I'll say this, I don't really like, I, there's some of that statement that I really like. Um, I don't like that Stott makes it look like a chess match between God and Satan, as if God is trying to figure out how he might overcome Satan, because I think that he's, he's, he's completely in control, right? Satan can't do anything apart from his, his will. And yet, I do like the contrast um, between the law, uh, what the law is from God's perspective, and the law is uh, from the perspective of fallen people. Right, so from God's 
perspective, the law is an interim step. It is a babysitter until the fullness of time has come. And yet, from our perspective, the law is a cul-de-sac, right? It just keeps turning us in on ourselves. Have I done enough? Look how good I am. I'm better than that person. I'm not as good as that person. And, and you know, it, we can be talking about the law of Moses, but we can also talk about what um, one theologian has called the little L law. So the big L law, capital L law, would be the law of Moses. But the little L law, think about where you are stressed in your life. Like every one of you, hmm, let me take 10 minutes to figure out where I'm. No, you know exactly. Something just popped right into your head. And there is a law of some sort, something that is acting as a law behind that. You should be as good as your mother. You should... Uh, be as successful as your brother. You should uh, do it this way. You should drive this. You should, you should wear that. You should, there's all, whatever should or ought that drives you a little bit insane. There is a law there. Whatever judgment that you issue upon another, if that, she would just get her act together. If, she, if he would just stop drinking so much. If he, uh, whatever issue, whatever judgment, and you might be right in a technical sense, but whatever, if there is an inkling that you are in a sense better because of that, or worse because of that, that is what we might call the little L law, and it functions the same, because they don't justify you. We justify ourselves against each other as standards, but we are not justified by God in any form or fashion by those things. The law, I heard someone say, the law comes right in through the front front door, and if by grace we, we know to lock the, the front door, then the law is coming in the back door. And if somehow we do the back door, then it's coming down the chimney, right? It's, um, it, it, the law is... Um, now, again, the law is good. In, in, the law gives order. The law reveals, as John Stott says, the law, God intended to, uh, the law to reveal sin and drive people to Christ. But Satan used it to reveal sin and drive us to despair. So, have I done enough? Am I good enough? I am better than that person. Um, that's, that's all law, right? And, and, and it's what we add to what Christ has done. Whether we do that to say we are somehow on the outside or we are somehow on the inside. When we add to what Christ, the finished work of Christ, we have created an idol for ourselves. So, that's why Stott says, from its fearful bondage, there is no escape. But Paul is saying that in Christ, we've we've come of age. Verse 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So you have the promise which has come through Abraham, the law which has come through Moses, and the fulfillment which has come through Jesus Christ. So let's look at these, uh, this verse 4 and 5 just a little. We're going to dig a little deeper on that one. It says, when the fullness of time had come. I don't think there's any real magic in that. It's just, um, he just said that a child is um, under the tutor until the time appointed by the father. And, uh, and then at that, when he comes of age, then, then he gets the, the benefit of the inheritance. I think that what he means is this, is, this was the time appointed when Christ came. In God's own infinite wisdom, 
That's, what, that's why he wanted there. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth. That's God's initiative. We did not, um, uh, he, he was not plan B in a sense. Of, oh my gosh, look, what they, look at the mess they've created. I better send my son down there to clean up. This, I, I saw a billboard once. Um, you know, there's, they were black and they would say some sort of pithy little phrase in, in white, you know, and one of them said, um, don't make me come down there. <laughs> God. I'm like, I'm not sure you get to speak for God quite like that. But, so it's not like God looked down and was like, oh man, I, this is getting out of control. I can't let it go any further. Jesus, get down there. It wasn't like that at all. There was an appointed time, there was a long season of the people of God demonstrating that they could not live according to the law. God gave them a form of punishment, of discipline. They got exiled um, after, I mean, generations and generations. Finally, they were exiled. He brought them back, and they couldn't create this sort of iconic utopia that they had hoped to recreate. After all that, 2,000 years of demonstration... Jesus came to say, okay, now you're no longer under a babysitter. You're under us. So, but it was God's initiative. And now there's three things about the one that God sent. He sent forth His Son. Right? Fully God. God from God, light from light, very God of very God, begotten but not made. Right? He is um, fully divine. A hundred percent. And yet he was born of a woman, so he is also fully human, right? 100%. You and I only get 100%. He gets two, right? 200%. He is fully God and fully human. Uh, it, is his, it is the combination that gives him the, um, the right to be our sacrifice. For if he were not human, he could not redeem things that were human. If he were not divine, he would not be qualified. He was born under the law. He was subject as a human to be, and actually as divine as well, under the full scale of the law. Now, interestingly enough, if you think about when God says it is good, it is not good because God looks at some standard outside of Himself and declares it to match that standard. It is good because God says it's good, right? It is God is the standard. So follow me there. If He is... if. If, Jesus, if God is subject to the law, then that's a law outside of Himself. But the reason the law is good is because it reflects God's character. God is not subject to the law. The law is subject to God. And yet, God placed Himself in the, in the incarnation, in the person of Christ. He placed Himself under the law. There's a, a submission to His own creation there. And um, so He was externally um, submitted to the law. Going to follow all. I'm not going to. I'm going to get it through life without murdering anybody. I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not going to covet. I'm going to keep the Sabbath. I'm. I'm going to do all the festivals. I'm. I'm externally committed to the law, but he was also internally committed to the law. Remember, we've said before, it's uh, the fulfillment of the law is not just doing the law, but doing it from a happy heart, right? Not not fire insurance, um, but to do it from uh, from the point that says I want to honor God, and so so. We see over and over again, particularly through the Gospel of John, uh, but through all the Gospels, the union of Christ to His Father. And it's just that He says, I can do nothing apart from what I see the Father doing. So He had to be this. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus was a church father back in the um, something hundreds, 400s, I think. 
uh, when he, and he said this, what, what he has not assumed, he has not redeemed. In other words, um, he had to assume the fullness of human nature. Otherwise, he could not redeem. He couldn't just show up as a, as a white knight and, uh, on a horse with a sword and, and take down Satan. He had to be born. He had to experience childhood and puberty and teenagerness and um, although what you know he did it right <laughs> uh, I've got a teenager and um, we need a savior but um, <coughs> principally the father he was never the father of a teenager so but um, but the uh, but nevertheless uh, he re- he redeemed the whole human experience because he lived the whole human experience is what Gregory of Nazianzus meant by that um, he assumed humanity and he assumed his own subjection to the demands of the law. And he did that with a purpose. So you look at the grammar there. Uh, when the fullness of time had come, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. And here's the purpose, to redeem those who were under the law. How do we normally, in our, the way we use the word redeem, to redeem or to redemption, how, we, we think about how we typically use that word. We, um, I, at least the way I think of it, in sort of sort of a vindication. I love, you know, a movie like a a story of a, um, you know, with a great redemption message. It's, it's going to be a vindication. Uh, I just watched um, with my family the movie Wonder. Have you guys seen this? I hated that movie. It made me cry. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I I love the movie. It's those kinds of things make me cry, and I just, I mean, just wet hot tears coming down. Um, so it's this one, the movie Wonder. If you haven't seen, it's about a little boy with some pretty severe facial deformities, and he's just picked on, and uh, and he uh, and it's just sort of about not just his own overcoming, but his family's overcoming, and actually the whole the school and all the kids who were picking on him, they're overcoming, and 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 I'm you know to the end, I'm just boohooing. Um, I did that in Toy Story three too. Um, <laughs> Don't tell anybody. Um, so that that is the that is that's the. So I just bring this up because that's sort of the the um, the way that we typically think about redemption, this sort of vindication, and I just want to draw a contrast because that's not actually what the Bible means. It's not, and I don't want to take away. Trent talked about uh, Jesus' story as the underdog story, and it, and it is that, and, and uh, but it's not. Um, but but when. The word redeem is a, is a market word. And not just like you redeem a coupon, but sort closer closer to that. Um, it is the transfer of funds to bring one out of the um, property and authority uh, uh, in and into another. I didn't say that very well. It's basically a purchase. To redeem is to buy, or to buy up, or to buy out. And it is the word that they used when someone purchased a slave. They redeemed them. Didn't necessarily in most of the context, it didn't mean they weren't slaves anymore. It just means that ownership was transferred, right? And so they were bought out of one household and into the household of another. And what Paul is using that word, he came to redeem those who were under law, to buy us. He paid the price with his own life out of, out from under the law and into the household of God. But, he's going on to say, we, he didn't buy us to be slaves. He does call us you know, slaves in the sense we're servants of God, but we are children. And if children, then heirs. So, he, we, he redeemed us to make us his sons. He redeemed us 
with a purpose as well. He re- to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Now, some of you intimately know adoption. Some of you know it from afar. But what you all know is that when someone is adopted, they go from being not part of a family to fully, completely, legally part of the family. The fa- family name is changed. They are written into the will. Come hell or high water. Right? They, they, um, they, are, uh, they have everything uh, that the child, the child of the flesh, would have. So if, we, if my family adopted a child, who knows one day, pray for us, but um, if we were to adopt a child, we would have four children. And all of the inheritance, or debt as the case may be, uh, would be split four ways. So legally, fully, they become children. But what he says is, if we're father, then we're—I mean, if we're children, then we're also heirs. I just think that's that's amazing. And what that means is that you have fully full access to God the Father, uh, everything that Christ has, everything that Jesus Christ has of the Father, you have. And I just think that is overwhelming and remarkable. So not only did He send His Son, but He also sent His Spirit. You can see the triune nature of what Paul is saying. And He says that we might cry out, Abba, Father. Um, he sent, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Do you remember when Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, right? He was in the garden, uh, and He called out, Abba, Father. So in our times of distress, uh, very clearly, He's aligning us with Christ. We have what Jesus has in the Father. And, and so now Paul moves and he says, so why are you going back? I mean, can you... Can you you're children. You, you have been adopted. You've become His own. Why are you going back? You didn't know God. You were enslaved to those things that aren't God's. And then you met the real God and you became His child. Why are you going back? You were formerly enslaved by the little L law, things that were not God's, right? But now you're set free. And what you're saying is, I prefer slavery to being a child. We've seen this before, right? We've seen grumbling in the wilderness. Send us back to Egypt. It's the human condition. Because you know what? Egypt was predictable. And freedom can feel a lot like wandering sometimes. But freedom is relational. And that's Paul's point. The Christian life is unfettered and unmerited freedom. It doesn't mean that there are no boundaries. Uh, What what I mean is, and what Paul means is, the bond is now love. So you can think of a fish swimming around in water. You can say, listen, nobody's going to, you're not bound to be confined to that water anymore. Let's take you out of there. Is that fish free? Not a chance. So freedom is not the absence of constraint, but, but the uh, ability to live within the proper constraints. This is not, if it sounds like what we're saying is bait and switch again, get your act together, that's not it. The proper constraint is the love of God. And you can do anything you want within that love. And if you step out of that love, not only in your own affection for God, but in the, our... Um, our motivations for our actions, 
then we must, we should, we are in fact free to repent and to turn back to our Father. Um, don't think Paul is saying it's wrong to have holy days like Easter and Christmas, like Jehovah's Witnesses would say, um, by saying, oh, you're, you're observing days and months and years. I, I don't think he's saying that. I don't think he's saying it's wrong to have holy days. He's just saying it's not, you're not, he says you're doing it in ritual obedience thinking that the better I do this, the more God will love me. That's what these people are saying. And so he, um, they're not trying it to be, they're not doing it because they love God or because they have freedom to do it. They're doing it because they must. And Paul is saying that you're free. So we are pretty short uh, on time uh, to get through the rest of this, but um, simply I would ask you to turn, um, uh, see how Paul turns to, to um, appeal to their relationship. Remember, he's not just all head. Paul has a wonderful heart. And he's saying, remember how you cared for me and how I cared for you. It seems like he stopped in Galatia because of an ailment. He was in his travels. He got sick. Maybe his eyes, because he says, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Something maybe with the, his eyes. But he, um, he, he, says, he says, you cared for me so well. And in that moment, I gave you Christ. And you believed it. And, and you received the Spirit. And, 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 and now the people are coming in. They're, they're saying that I was disingenuous. And you know that that's not true. We loved each other well. My, and he calls them his little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. You know, like when your kid runs off and does something, you, it just breaks your heart. It's not because you, you're not angry because you don't love them, you're angry because you do love them. Right? I wish I could be present with you now. Change my tone. I am perplexed about you. And then he goes into these two covenants. Um... Hagar or Hagar, either way you can say it, uh, and Sarah. And I'm going to, maybe we'll get to that uh, next week. Um, I don't think it would suit us to go into that. Uh, But simply to say that you are children of promise. Um, There's a lot in this last paragraph, but we have run, if we start there, we will run out of time. Um, Questions or thoughts about uh, what we have covered? Yes, Susie. Do you think, is your opinion, that after Adam and Eve sinned, they denied everything? Did they? Do you think they ever asked for forgiveness? The question is, do I think that Adam and Eve, after they sinned, did they ask forgiveness? It does seem that they had sorrow in their heart. Um, but we see incredible grace, because God could have just stomped them out and started over, right? And we'd have never known the difference. And yet He clothed them. And um, and put a hedge of protection around them. So, uh, so I do think there was there was a desire, it seems, for for that relationship. So, um, no, I don't think they ran off in cold heartedness. But we see the immediate consequence of human sin is death, right? In Cain and Abel. Okay. Yes. Thinking about talking about freedom and being a slave, and there's a scripture I think in Romans that says that Paul says everything's permissible, but not everything is beneficial. That's kind of a translation that I have, and it makes me think of I'm free in Christ, but because of the constraint of the Holy Spirit and my love for Christ and Jesus and me, I don't do all those things that are permissible. 
because I'm in Christ, I can do basically you're saved, you know, by grace and through faith. But yet I'm constrained, not because I'm forced to, but because of the Spirit, to not do the things that are not beneficial for Him. Mm-hmm. And that kind of helps me to think of it that way. Well, when, free. yeah, sure. I mean, when it's relational, mm-hmm. then then there, I mean, that that relationship places a constraint as well. I mean, I think when I uh, s- snap at Amy, and I, and I shouldn't, I'm free not to go back and apologize, but I'm not, it's not beneficial, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, wouldn't help the relationship. Um, That's the difference between having a religion and having a relationship. That's it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've got to keep this law, or I'm going to get struck down, or something, because it was a fear-based, yes, um, performance-based thing. And, and typically, once I came to know him, it's, it's the difference. Sure. So to, to continue that illustration, if I snap at Amy, it's typically here's my argument: How can you point out this one little thing? Shouldn't I be able to get off the hook with that? Because I did this and this and this and this, and I've worked really hard. Right? I'm justified. That's my religion, right? I have earned my way to mess up this one time. <laughs> Oh, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. This couch is not very comfortable. Um, yeah, so it, it is, it, the relationship is a willing constraint, right? I mean, you, you, we're happiest. We're made for relationship. And you know it, but to protect and, and to be happy in that relationship, we have to abide by constraint. We can't just say, I love you so much, I'm gonna get, but I'm free to go do whatever I want without, it, without worrying about how it hurts your feelings. How it damages the relationship. And so that is, it is not the absence of constraint. That is what, I mean, our, our culture's mantra is freedom. And the way that freedom is defined is the absence of constraint. It is compl- a completely untenable position. Anybody who thinks about it for a second would quickly see that the constraint actually freedom. provides freedom. It's just freedom is working within the proper constraints. It's chaos without. Yeah, no, the law and all these oughts and shoulds and musts that we create icon, I mean, um, idols out of, that that actually, um, it, that's not the proper constraint. That is slavery, right? Slavery is not the proper constraint, but the relationship is proper. So... Anyway, that's good. I hope that's helpful and and, um, clarifying. We will maybe touch on these two covenants and then get into fruit of the Spirit next week. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.